Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 2, Invasion of Giant Deer, Cannibals, and Celts. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping us keep this community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Josh, Anna, and Karen for joining up already. Today's episode will cover the period from about 70,000 BCE to the 1st century BCE. And we'll be talking about important figures, such as Lindau Man, Cheddar Man, and Pythias. But for the most part, we're going to be talking about largely prehistoric Britain today. It will be a lightning recap, but chances are we're going to double back later on and talk more about this fascinating period in history, perhaps in future members-only episodes. But for right now, we're going to condense about 70,000 years of history into a single episode, and that should give you a sense of our earliest beginnings and get us quickly to Caesar's invasions and the Roman occupation, since that is what Season 1 is focused upon. Now, it goes without saying that there wasn't any literature or written history or anything like that during this period. Consequently, what we know of this time comes primarily from archaeological digs. And yet we're still able to make pretty good educated guesses as to what was going on in Britain. Though, as is always the case, there will be some competing theories on just about everything that we're talking about. This era is a rich breeding ground for academic debate. But for our purposes, with this quick overview, we're just going to hit some of the major points. Think of it like a whistle-stop tour of prehistory. Here we go. So about 70,000 years ago, the world saw the beginnings of its last ice age. The climate took a pretty sharp decline. Though, as is the case with shifts in climate, these global changes were slight. We like to imagine an ice age was the result of a huge drop in temperature, like maybe 30 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit, right? But actually, it doesn't require all that much, and the global temperature during the last ice age dropped by less than 10 degrees Fahrenheit. That's it. Yet the impact upon the global climate was dramatic. Ice domes covered large swaths of Europe, and by about 60,000 years ago, we had woolly mammoths and giant deer wandering around the frigid plains of Britannia. And as a side note, if you haven't seen an artist's rendition of a giant deer, you should check it out. And I put one up on my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Now, things did improve for a bit, and around 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals started to arrive in Britannia, and around 30,000 years ago, modern humans followed them. But they didn't stick around. It turns out that there was a cold snap about 22,000 years ago, and Britannia became a treeless tundra for thousands of years. Think about that. That's how cold Britain was. Even trees had a hard time surviving. So when you think about Britain during this period, don't think of a really cold day in Aberdeen. Think of northern Greenland in winter. Things were dire. And so most everything decided to head south in search of palm trees and coconut drinks, or at the very least a cave where they weren't at risk of dying of frostbite or starvation. And needless to say, back in Britain, things were icy. In fact, things were icy for large parts of the earth. And all that ice required a huge amount of water, and that had a side effect. It meant that there was less water available for the oceans. So at around this period of time, 
the sea level was about 417 feet lower than it is today. That is how cold this era was, and it was all over a global drop of less than 10 degrees Fahrenheit, a difference so slight that if it happened on a single day, you wouldn't even change what you were wearing. That's the power of climate, and also the difference between climate and weather. Weather, which is what you feel day to day, is not that big of a deal. If it drops by 10 degrees, who cares? But if climate drops by 10 degrees, meaning that the overall temperature drops by 10 degrees, that's huge. So we've got Britain turning into a tundra, and most of the life decided to scamper. And we have a 417-foot drop in the ocean. It's crazy. And that drop in sea level is important, because when I've been referring to Britannia... I just mean the general area that became our island, but at this point in history, it would be absolutely unrecognizable when compared to the image that we're accustomed to seeing on a map. In fact, at this point, Britannia was connected to both Ireland and the continent, and there was a whole stretch of land that we've commonly come to refer to as Doggerland that now lies beneath the waves, but at that time, it was above the waves and people were able to walk around on it. Anyway, so about 14,000 years ago, people started to return to Britannia. I mean, the world was warming up, and they were starting to miss their damp, fertile slice of heaven. So our prehistoric ancestors left southern France and Spain and started to head back. And then 2,000 years later, which was the end of the last Ice Age, Ireland split off from Britannia entirely. Though at the time, Britannia was still connected to the continent via a land bridge. At the same time, the woodlands began to come back, and Britannia started to recover from the Ice Age. Sort of. While the woodlands did come back, the food animal population declined due to the climate change. The thing is, that the life that did stick around when everything got cold had adapted to that cold. And the creatures who couldn't adapt moved on. But those who stuck around really were well-suited to the tundra lifestyle. But as the woodlands returned and temperatures started to increase, their environment changed. And the things that made them so well-suited to life in the cold started to become a burden. So the big furry mammals and other things like that started to die out. And this was probably not helped by the fact that the humans were back in town. And they were now using small flint tools. So let's jump forward quite a bit to about 7,150 BCE. At this point, there lived a man who was around 21 years old, and he lived in the Cheddar region. We call him Cheddar Man because we're quite creative with naming. And as I alluded to, he lived in a period of global warming. The sea levels were continually rising, and that land bridge that connected Britannia to France had now become marshy and discontiguous. And over time, the ties would be severed, and earthquakes and water would erode the previous landmass, and the English Channel would be formed. But during the time of Cheddarman, it was still in place. Mostly. Now, looking at his bones, we believe that he died due to a blow to his head. Though, we're not really sure whether or not that was due to warfare, or just outright murder. But regardless, Mr. Cheddar came to an early end. And what makes Cheddar Man so interesting is the fact that there are marks on his skeleton that indicate that his bones had been scraped clean after his death. Now, why would anyone scrape the meat off the bones? One potential answer is related to burial rituals. 
Sometimes societies engage in something called secondary burial. And in that circumstance, those left behind would, after a time, scrape the bones of the dead clean and then rebury them. But there's another possibility, and one that's gotten a lot of attention because it's much more sexy. Cannibalism. Yeah, it is possible that he might have been eaten. And now anyone complaining about British food should take another look at this story and see how far our cuisine might have come. Not to mention the fact that I think it's all hype. British food is hearty and delicious, especially if you get it out in Wales, like a nice little farming town. But that's a talk for another time. Back to Cheddar Man and his hungry neighbors. So despite his early and unpleasant death, there is somewhat of a happy ending here. Cheddar Man lives on. Well, at least his relatives do. Mitochondrial DNA tests have shown that Cheddar Man is related to at least two residents of modern-day Cheddar, and around 11% of the modern European population. And that's really exciting, and it also tells you how likely the English are to emigrate, doesn't it? Oh, you'll definitely see Brits on holiday, but leaving the UK, or even their villages, permanently? Let's not get carried away. Alright, so at around 6500 BCE, Doggerland finally sunk into the channel and started to get carved out by the ocean. Britannia was fully separating from the continent, and had UKIP been around at this point, they no doubt would have been very excited. And then, at around 4000 BCE, Britannia hit the Neolithic Age. So go team there. And at this point, there are around 10,000 people living in the whole of Britannia, That's it, just 10,000 people. So the island was still very sparsely populated. And life went on pretty well until about 2500 BCE. At which point, someone decided that Britannia needed a better tourist industry. And so, Stonehenge was built. And at least for today, that's all I'm going to say on the subject. Stonehenge is neat. But there are a tremendous number of books, documentaries, podcasts, and even novelizations that focus upon it. And for us, we're just doing a quick summary, so I don't want to get bogged down. Maybe I'll do a later show on it, but for right now, all you need to know is that we might have had proto-Welshmen dragging stones around for miles at right around this point. So good times. And then, by around 1000 BCE, we started to see hill forts popping up. A hill fort is exactly what it sounds like. The early Britons would find a hill that they thought looked pretty good, and then they build a fort on top of it. Simple and effective. And at this point, Britannia was in the Bronze Age. Now, it isn't too surprising that they were in the Bronze Age, despite the fact that Europe was already in the Iron Age. Sure, there was travel and trade, and something that's remarkably consistent is that we always seem to underestimate trade link and travel in the past. But even though there certainly was trade and travel, the Brits were still largely cut off from the continent. So the exchange of technology that occurred on the continent was probably occurring at a much slower rate. Further, there was an abundance of copper and tin on the island, so bronze was readily accessible. So why not take advantage of the wealth that was right there on your doorstep? And that's kind of what they did until around 700 BCE, when iron started to first get introduced into the island. But despite the fact that iron deposits were present in Britannia, the spread of the use of iron was slow to say the least. There were tribes that adopted it, but it was hardly an instant switch. Over time though, everyone did make the switch to iron. After all, they kind of had to because iron was much stronger than bronze. And if you think about it, if you are a member of a tribe that used bronze, 
and you were getting attacked by a tribe that was using iron, there's a good chance you're going to get your butt kicked. So eventually, everyone switched or perished. And then something significant happened between 500 and 400 BCE. A new group of people began to relocate to Britannia. They came from France and northern Spain, and their arrival would forever change the destiny of Britannia. And they were known as the Celts. Now this group was tremendously influential on the continent, and long before Hannibal and Attila struck terror into the hearts of Rome, it was the Celtic people who kept the Romans awake late at night. Their culture spread to encompass a massive swath of Europe, and while they didn't have a single empire as the Romans did, their impact was felt all throughout the region. And now they were coming to Britannia. Of course, as is the way with this period in history, there's plenty of room to debate, and nothing here is crystal clear, other than the fact that there were at least two groups that arrived, and they could be identified by their languages. One group of Celts were known as the Brythons, and they spoke a language known as Brythonic, which would end up being the ancestor for languages such as Welsh, Cornish, and Breton. Another group of Celtic people came from southern France, and they settled in Ireland in about 350 BCE, and they brought with them their language, Goidelic, which would eventually become Gaelic. Now, the Celtic people probably would not have called themselves Celts. It's a catch-all term for the tribal group that started in the Hallstatt territory in Central Europe at around the 6th century BCE, and by 275 BCE, they had spread throughout Europe. So they were efficient. But, as I mentioned, they weren't a unified group, and they fought amongst themselves as much as they did against anyone else. But they had enough cultural similarities that we now refer to that enormous group of tribes collectively as Celtic. And fun side note, despite the fact that Celtic territory has been shrinking over the years, even into our modern day, their languages still cling on. For example, right now there's a revival of the Breton language in French Brittany. And Welsh has been rescued from the brink and is now widely spoken in Wales. Kind of exciting, isn't it? And at around this point in time, Britannia was known as Albion. Albion shares the root of the Latin word for white, which might refer to the white cliffs of Dover. And it also shares the same stem as the Welsh word for the world, or earth. Which I kind of find interesting. Anyway, so at around 325 BCE, we're starting to get to the point where we don't have to just rely on archaeology to piece together our history. And that's because the Greek navigator Pythias showed up on our shores. And when he landed, he brought with him his trusty stick. And this stick actually was quite important. And what he would do with it is he'd wander around the island with his stick, and at a certain time each day, he would poke his stick into the ground and measure the length of the shadow. And by doing this, he was able to roughly figure out where he was and map out the island. Now, obviously, if we were going to compare his maps to modern maps, we'd scoff. But for the time, this was a pretty good way to map out a newly discovered island. And as Pythias was marching around with his stick, he encountered a group of strange people that he'd never seen before. And he referred to these natives as the Pretenni, meaning painted, or maybe tattooed. Consequently, he referred to this island that he was mapping as Pretenike, the land of the painted people. Later, as his findings were spread into Rome, they were also translated into Latin, 
And so Pretenike became Pretenia. And over time, that morphed into Britannia. And that's how we ended up with a modern name for our island. Pretty neat, right? All right, so at around this time, it's thought that there were really two distinct cultural groups in Britannia. The coastal people, who were generally agrarian and traders, with Kent being the most advanced among them. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Kent was the most likely to have easy access to the continent, which would have allowed for better access to new technology that was being developed across the channel and easier trade. Meanwhile, the inland Britons are thought to have been mostly hunter-gatherer scavengers at this point. But regardless of where in Britannia a tribe was based, or what sort of lifestyle it had developed, the communities were very small. And that's because of the geography of the island. Britannia was filled with hills and mountains and various other natural barriers. The lowlands were separated from the highlands. Wales was separated from eastern Britannia. All of this made any sort of large-scale political growth on the island really difficult. And this, too, could account for the technological gap between the island and the continent. After all, to have technological advances, you typically require enough surpluses to enable a society to have people who have the time to just not only sit around and think about a way to make a better mousetrap, but also have the material in order to build it. So you need a lot of extra stuff. And with smaller communities, getting surpluses would have been harder. And as a consequence, they might not have had enough spare manpower to enable someone to sit around and just think of new ways to do things, let alone go and find the material to build it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, trade was largely occurring between southern coastal Britannia and France, but things really kicked up in 200 BCE, and trade went into overdrive. And with this expansion of trade, we start to see evidence of contact with Greece, as indicated by the wide availability of Greek coins. And of course, heavy trading with the Celtic people of the Amorican Peninsula, which is modern-day Brittany, was evidenced by the distribution of their silver coins along the coastal areas. And you might be wondering what the Brits were trading. Well, it's thought that at this point, the major exports were tin, copper, and hunting dogs. Now, by about 100 BCE, we start to see Gallo-Belgic coins appear in Britannia, as well as some other technological leaps. We once thought that this was due to invasions from Belgic Gaul, but that theory has fallen out of favor. So now, the big theory is that the coins appeared in Britannia due to the payment for military services. As in, the Brits were offering themselves as mercenary warriors for the fights that were happening on the continent. And that theory would explain why Caesar would later describe Belgic raiders in the area. So it is entirely possible. In this period, there was also an increase of what Caesar would call oppida. And these were large walled towns, often located in thickly wooded areas and protected by ditches. The advantage of an oppidum was significant. The thing is, with a smaller hill fort, you could only manage to protect whoever managed to make a run for it and get inside. Everyone outside, as well as all the livestock, the homes, and whatever possessions were left outside of the hill fort, well, they would be subject to raiders. But with an oppidum, you could protect everything behind a single town wall. This made raiding and tribal warfare, which was quite common in this fractured and bellicose island, much more difficult. Now, as for what was driving British life at the time, Britannia was largely an agricultural economy. There was some trading that was happening, especially in areas like Kent and the Cornish Peninsula. But generally, the Britons were agricultural, 
and the farmers probably used the same sort of ox-drawn plow that their ancestors had done for thousands of years. But despite the lack of technological leaps in farming, they were nonetheless gifted farmers in a world where food production was closely tied to wealth. And the booming economy of the southern Britons, combined with their Iron Age technology, finally forced the remainder of the straggling Bronze Age tribes into joining the, then, modern world. And of course, the population had exploded during this period, and had gone well beyond the 10,000 people that had once been there. Now, there are about a million or so people, and they were speaking a Celtic language, which really should be no surprise since they were either Celtic or had absorbed the Celtic culture following its introduction onto the island hundreds of years prior. So consequently, they shared a common language. But what's interesting to us is that as a consequence of this, they shared a common language and religion with the Celts of Gaul. And as we talked about, they were farmers. And actually, much of what we think of as the traditional English countryside got its start during this period. In fact, some of the boundaries set down by these early Britons still remain today. Though naturally, they did live in very different circumstances. For example, they congregated in very small villages that were populated with round, thatch-roofed cottages. And they drank a very weak and unsatisfying ale, not to get a buzz, but because it was a rather efficient way to hydrate and also get some calories into your system. And I'll spare you the beer nerd discussion on how particularly bad it would have been, but I'll just point out one thing. This was centuries before anyone even considered brewing with hops. You can't have beer without hops. That's madness. But despite their weak ale, I don't want to give you the impression that they didn't like to party. Those Britons definitely liked to get drunk. But mead was the drink of choice for that. Mead is fermented honey, and as a hoppy beer man, I could tell you that it's far too sweet for my palate. And, in my experience, it can also give you a pretty nasty hangover, which might be why those early Britons were so warlike. Now, we should probably also touch upon the religion of the time, Druidism. The Druidic priests are quite an interesting subject, and we believe that by this time in history, they were basically a different class from the rest of the Britons, almost like a caste system. And the acolytes would train for decades before becoming fully-fledged priests. During this training, they would learn sacred rites, of course, but they would also memorize the oral history of the people. As I discussed earlier, This was a point where there was no written record in Britannia. And consequently, the entire history of the people were in the hands, or at least the minds, of the priests. And there must have been some excellent stories in there. I mean, they came across the channel, they came from a cultural group that held huge swaths of Europe, and these stories also probably told of how they interacted with the original inhabitants of Britannia. So you might be wondering where those stories are. Well, we've lost most of them. See, the problem is that the Romans were not big fans of the Druids. And spoiler alert, they utterly wiped them out. They might have done this because they were rebellious. But Rome had a habit of grudgingly dealing with other rebellious religions within their borders. So what made the Druids so special? Well, the Roman sources do point us to another possible reason— they leveled accusations against the Druids that they committed ritual human sacrifice. And typically, Rome would deal with most other religions within its borders, as they were polytheists. And it wasn't unusual for a Roman to show respect to strange local gods in a new land. But one thing that they weren't that big on 
was human sacrifice. And I actually find that funny considering, you know, the gladiatorial games. But whatever, they drew a line with the Druids. Of course, since the Romans were generally the only people recording history, we often just have to take their word on things. But we should keep in mind that they were not offering an unbiased account especially since many of their written records were scarcely better than propaganda pieces and focused a great deal upon issues that a Roman audience would find appealing. Not just for the shock factor, but also in order to continually justify their behaviors and cast themselves in a heroic light. So, as with many things, we need to keep in mind where our information comes from, and when needed, take their accusations with a grain of salt. But that being said... We have found a body in the Petey Marsh at Lindau. And he was, of course, called Lindau Man. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. At first, they called him Pete Marsh, which I think is a way better name. But now we all know him as Lindau Man. What can you do? So, Pete, what do we know about him? Well, we think that he was struck on the head, but he wasn't killed. And then he was strangled, but still not killed. And then he had his throat cut in a way that would have caused a fountain of blood to spurt out. And then he definitely was killed at that point. And that sounds rather sacrificial to me. But the really interesting part is that there was some mistletoe pollen found in his stomach. And as a side note, science is really incredible, isn't it? I can't believe they managed to find mistletoe pollen. Anyway, the reason that's significant is that the druids venerated oak and mistletoe groves. And so you might be thinking, aha, proof! The Romans were telling the truth. But keep in mind, this was a sample size of one. We have found one guy. We don't know exactly what happened there, and we don't even know what the intent behind his death was. And so we can draw inferences, but we don't have any contemporary account of what actually happened. We don't have Pete Marsh writing down, Dear Diary, today I'm going to be sacrificed, right? Further, this is one person out of over a million people. So we need to put that in context and not just assume that it's unimpeachable confirmation of the Roman panegyrists. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Imagine that all knowledge of American culture was lost. And then 2,000 years from now, historians found one of the victims of Jeffrey Dahmer and an irate blog post about how all Americans are lunatics. And that's it. That's all they found. How representative would that be for American culture? I mean, hell, even today, when Americans go overseas, they typically have to field all sort of odd assumptions because people don't realize how widely disparate our cultures are. For example, how the West Coast is completely different from the South. Well, Britain has the same thing going on. Wales is not the same as Scotland, and neither of them are the same as England. And within each country, you'll find entirely different cultures from village to village and town to town. Well, that's not a new thing. There have always been widely different cultures within the same region. So all that I'm getting at here is that you can't assume that one body is indicative of a culture of the entire island, or even for the group of people inhabiting the area. It might have just been a lone nut. We might be seeing the equivalent of Jeffrey Dahmer here. Who knows? But what we do know is that the Romans will end up destroying the entire religion. The Druids will be no more. And as a consequence, the history of much of Celtic Britannia will get shattered along with it. And that breaks my heart. I'm a cultural relativist only so far. And if they were committing human sacrifice, I think that is beyond the pale. 
But still, losing all of that history, it's just tragic. So now we're at the first century BCE, and Rome is powerful in Gaul. It's powerful pretty much everywhere else as well. But it hasn't yet crossed the channel. Though the southern Britons would have been well aware of the Romans by now. And soon, those cultures would clash. But that's a talk for our next episode. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And frankly, there's all kinds of different ways you can get involved. All you need to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a poke around. There's lots of communities there, and we'd love to see you join up. All right, thanks for listening.